I I never do that. But the reason the reason I never say, well, what about you know, liberalism has also failed, is because I think the standards of socialists should be a lot higher than the standards of liberals. So <laughs> right. the fact that the fact that liberalism <laughs> yeah. fails. left of philosophy. I'm Owen, and here with me today is Gil. Hello. Lillian. Hey, Owen. And Will. What's up, man? Yeah, how's it going? And as our guest today, we've got um, Leah Upi. And so we're thrilled to welcome her. She's a political theorist and professor at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Professor Upi has written numerous books and articles dealing with the nature of freedom, philosophical issues surrounding migration, purposiveness and systematic unity in Kant, uh, among many other subjects. But today we're going to be discussing her recently published autobiographical book titled Free. The book provides a really engrossing account of Leah's coming of age in the late 80s and early 90s in Albania during the final years of the Stalinist regime and the country's liberalization. It traces her kind of arrival at political consciousness at this time of transition and explores the fraught relationship between political concepts as they are spoken about, taught, even sloganeered, and the social realities that are said to embody them, but often contradict them. Uh, and there's a line from the book that I wanted to share that, that captures this fraught relationship, I think. Um, so after the fall of the communist regime, quote, only one word was left, freedom. It featured in every speech on television, in every slogan barked out in rage on the streets. When freedom finally arrived, it was like a dish served frozen. We chewed little, swallowed fast, and remained hungry. Some wondered if we had been given leftovers. Others noted they were simply cold starters. So yeah, the, the book is beautifully written. It's super funny at times. Um, I recommend checking it out. But I thought I would start our discussion today by asking you, Leah, to say a little more about why, given all the more explicitly theoretical work you've done on the concept of freedom and other concepts in your academic writing, why this way of approaching it through your experience as a child in Albania struck you as important. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, I was going to initially write a book on the overlapping ideas of freedom in the liberal and the socialist traditions. And I have always been attracted to um, this concept of freedom, which I felt many socialist authors inherited from liberalism. And I've also often tried to make a theoretical argument for why socialism was best seen as a theory of human freedom and not like many people often seem to assume as a theory of equality. So we tend to have this division of labor whereby we often assume that liberals are interested in freedom and socialists are interested in equality. And I have long been interested in sort of philosophical roots of socialism and in the socialist tradition as an effort to promote these themes of freedom that you find in liberal traditions and also in the socialist critique of liberalism and capitalism as a system that betrays its own commitment to freedom. And so I was interested in exploring how basically freedom features in each of these systems. And 
wanted to write about the contradictions in liberalism. I wanted to write about why liberals, although they're apparently committed to freedom, in fact, because of the way in which economic and political structures interact with each other, fail to promote this freedom of every individual. And so this notion of sort of freedom for everyone is in fact often not realized in liberal systems. And so I was starting to think about the sort of realities of liberalism. And also in thinking about the realities of liberalism, kept thinking about the realities of socialism that I was familiar with as a result of uh, growing up in Albania. Now, one of the reasons why I have been increasingly brought to think about Albania is that when you defend socialism from a theoretical perspective, one of the first criticisms that you encounter is, well, you know, whereas socialism has failed everywhere. And my instinctive response to that kind of objection has been to say, well, you know, maybe socialism has failed everywhere, but liberalism has also failed everywhere. <laughs> right. and, and, and people seem to be always not to accept the symmetry. And so in my mind, there was always a, a symmetry in the failures of the socialist and the liberal system, which I often was led to think about as a result of my life and of growing up you know, having spent my childhood in a socialist country or in a country that was committed to socialist ideals and my teenage years in a country that was committed to liberal ideals. And so it felt like these life experiences were a good way to think about how we theorize freedom, how freedom features in different political systems, in different legal systems, but also in the kind of lives of individuals and how, you know, this both commitment to freedom, but also the disillusionment have take distinctive forms in distinctive political systems. And so the sort of the larger philosophical theme that animates the book that I ended up writing is this idea of freedom. And the way in which the book explores that idea is by trying to explain what individual agency and responsibility look like when there are larger social constraints and structures of power, one would say, that inhibit individual agency. And so the book then explores how this yearning for freedom is at the heart of all the choices and the dilemmas faced by the different characters who all of them also have different conceptions of what freedom is and what it takes to realize it. And also who encounter these dilemmas as they navigate different political systems. And so it felt to me like, you know, I could draw on my life and on the characters that I knew and on the people I had met, the sort of their life stories but to try and tell the universal story about how everyone in the world right now has encountered freedom, both as a promise and also as a disillusionment, and to try and write about what distinctive forms this promise and disillusion takes in different political systems, and to think about uh, these political systems with a slightly more critical eye, but also hopefully with an eye to you know, developing a perspective on the future that draws on the benefits and and sort of and learns from the limitations and the historical failures of each of them. So I wanted to ask something about kind of start with the end of the book where you were talking about your conversations with western socialists when you went to university and you were having debates with people and it seems to me like so you're just saying that people refuse the symmetry between liberalism and socialism and it seems to me that that's not just liberals who are like partisans of the cold war that refuse the symmetry it also seems to be western socialists on on the left and this really resonated with me because i think that even if you are like an american socialist or you're in western europe and you doubt the cold war narrative narrative about capitalism being the embodiment of freedom 
it seems to me that the third rail is really that there could be anything redeemable about socialist societies before their collapse, before the collapse of the Eastern Eastern Bloc. And this occurred to me most strongly when I moved to Germany and started trying to learn more about just the the life world of the DDR, the GDR. And, you know, there are things you find out that like trade unions used to have like a vacation lottery and whole families could like go on vacation for three weeks to the sea with a whole bunch of other people with their whole families paid for by the union. And I'm like, wow, that sounds really nice. Can we could do that again? But then, so, but it, that was actually not, it's actually not something, those kinds of lessons or ideas or like moments of imagination, they're not something that you actually can, can bring up in most Western socialist circles. So I was wondering maybe if you could just expand on how it seemed like you confronted that obstacle in talking about freedom and socialism with colleagues, with friends, and how did that impact your, your perspective over time? So I think you're right. So one of the reasons why I always, you know, said when I said that I came from Albania and that what we had in Albania was actually socialism. And we, as you say, so one of the, for the first instinctive reactions that I encountered was, well, Albania was a very isolated society, which it was. It was a very hardcore Stalinist country, which it was. It was a country that, you know, from which you could hardly leave during communism. And if you tried to leave, you'd be shot at the border. So there were restrictions, not just restrictions, but threats to one's lives and forms of oppression that were you know, unimaginable in a lot of Western societies. And so the response, because of those experiences, was always to kind of trash with that also any idea that there could have been anything positive in these experiences in terms of community building, in terms of relations of solidarity, in terms of, you know, how people had tried to navigate the system despite all the constraints. And also, for me, most importantly, the fact that even within a very oppressive system, there is always differentiation in different historical periods and different political moments. So there is a kind of politics and change, even within societies that from the outside look completely homogeneous. And I was aware of this because of, you know, the Albanian experience, which I try to a little bit, when I describe in the book, the, the history of Albania, I talk about how Albanian socialism was characterized initially by this sort of alliance with Yugoslavia, then with the Soviet Union, then with the China, and then there was a sort of split with China and an effort to go completely alone and where the system became really isolated. And that was the point in which I sort of grew up. That was when I was born. Albania had no allies, basically, in the world. It was the, the slogan was that we were a lighthouse for all anti-imperialist countries around the world because everybody else was either a, a social revisionist imperialist or sort of American, Anglo-American imperialist. But on the other hand, the experiences, the, the critique of capitalism that you found in that society, so the way in which from the inside you looked at the world and you looked at the capitalist world and, you know, we talked about apartheid and we talked about inequality, we talked about child labor in the West, about all of these things were kind of true. So even though this was a very, you know, in some ways ideological society characterized by censorship in which you only had access to one sort of unilateral side of the story, some of the things that were said about the other side were the kinds of things that the Western left would talk about and would share. And so there was an overlap in this kind of critique of liberalism and capitalism, which was reflected in some of the experiences of the country and which I was interested in talking about. And I wasn't happy to say, well, look, what you had was not really uh, socialism, because as I say, once you play that game, every political system 
every system of ideas, when it gets realized in institutions, is always going to be imperfect. And there will always be limitations and, and problems, which will be some of them contextual. They will have to do with the history of the institutions of that country or with the you know, experience of mobilization. And some will be you know, to do with the constraints at that particular point in time or with the constraints of a global system. So any system of ideas will be realized not in a perfect way anywhere. And for me, what is really important and what I've sort of taken away from the Albanian experience is that when we confront these uh, systemic choices, as it were, it's never helpful to think about the past as something that could never be repeated or from which we never have anything to learn. It's, I think, much more productive to kind of take these experiences as they are and then see what we can, how we can engage with them in the right way and what we can learn from them, both from their mistakes, but also from the positives. And so my sort of reflection on Albanian socialism is in that spirit, is to try and say, look, here is, you know, 50 years of history of one country in the Balkans, which shares these characteristics, and, you, you know, from which maybe you can learn one thing or two. And you can only learn those things if you think that these experiences have anything to contribute to what we now think about socialism, what we think about institutions, how we think about democracy and so on. And it's very easy to say, well, you know, what you had wasn't socialism, what you had wasn't liberalism. That, can, that applies to any system of ideas. It applies to any complex encounter of ideals and reality. And so I find that that attitude is, yeah, just not productive and doesn't help. I find there is another sort of side problem to that, which is that there is a kind of paternalism in the way in which uh, Western liberals engage with any experiences outside the kind of core liberal world. And that was also something that I wanted to kind of confront and talk about directly. There's a sense in which there is countries or groups of people who don't share a straightforward liberal trajectory and with reference to whom the tendency is always to think, for liberals, to think of themselves as kind of moral saviors that, you know, are ready to free people and to free countries from their backwardness and from their plight. And that applies both to the left and to the right, actually. So the, the right wants to interfere for one set of reasons, which have to do with right-wing ideology and liberal ideas and libertarian ideas and so on. But I find there is a kind of similar equivalent risk in the left, insofar as they engage with left-wing experiences in other parts of the world that are not the kind of the recognized liberal world as experiences that aren't really worth engaging with and aren't worth learning about and learning from and kind of confronting because... I think there is a sort of implicit assumption to think that, well, we, the left here, knows better. And so when we do it, we'll get it right, as opposed to all these backward countries who didn't know what they were doing and weren't kind of sufficiently enlightened and were a bit kind of backward and primitive. And so that was also partly what was, I guess, moving my critique. Yeah, as a as a Western leftist, I'm quite sure that if I were put in charge of anything, it would go horribly wrong. So I don't have that sort of... Uh, perspective. But some of the things that you say in the book are, are so fascinating, like the position specifically of Albania, as you put it, like torn between, or at least in its self-conception, imperialism to the West and revisionism to the East. And this sort of sense of being like independent, almost as a matter of just necessity, as like something forced upon you. It seems like it created this, this context in which on the one hand, you describe small, like personal arguments or debates between people kind of exploding out into these like arguments about like movements of world historical significance, right, at every turn. Um, and then on the other hand, one of the most moving and powerful parts of your book, I think, is as you emphasize toward the end, the way that like these ideas 
are actually all, you know, trying to capture something, but there's human beings that are actually at stake in each case. There's a real, like, powerful and, and empathetic humanism to the book where, as you say, like, yeah, like, if you read Marx, you'll talk about the capitalist only insofar as they are the bearer of these or those social relations. But then, you know, you actually meet human beings who aren't just that, and it's much less abstract and much messier and more complicated to try to actually get down to this personal level where it's human beings with, you know, their own systems of ends and desires, goals, beliefs, and, and interests. And so I, I don't know, I, I think that there's a kind of double movement here that I, that I found really powerful, right? Like the sort of the personal being this like world historical thing, but then also the need to recognize the, the common humanity, even amongst those who have wildly different sorts of ideas and interpretations. I don't know if you wanted to speak to that sort of thing at all. Yeah, I think, again, sort of what I found interesting as I started to think about the Albanian experience is that it's in a way what, you know, mathematicians or political scientists call a limit case. So a limit mm. case, a limit kind of experiment or a social experiment is one where you can test a particular component of a theory or a value in its extreme form. And I think in Albania, this really was the kind of limit case in a way, because you could see it's a limit because you can see how ideas of freedom shape lives in different political systems and both the socialist system and the liberal system are at their limits in a way. So they're at the limit of the kind of contradictions they generate. Yeah. The, 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 the oppression is at, at its limit. The social tensions that it generates are their limit. And these systems are often presented as rivals to each other. So what's really interesting about Albania is it's a kind of small social lab laboratory where you can see both of these ideas of freedom, both the socialist one and the liberal one, each with a different ethos that characterizes it and each with a kind of different sets of values and the way in which they get reflected in the lives of, of the individuals. And so there's, there's that. And then there is the other element to it, I guess, which is the kind of coming of age element, which is in a way applies both to the individual, to the main character who is growing up through this experience, through this transition from socialism to, to liberalism, and also the country who is kind of on the cusp of making this transition evolution from one set of ideas to another set of ideas and so it's a kind of coming of age story both for the, from the individual who is uh you know because the, the period that is narrated in the book coincides with the personal cognitive and emotional evolution of that character but also it's a kind of coming of age for the country because it's a country that's also maturing through this difficult dark socialist past into what is promised as, you know, the new land of freedom, liberal system, where everyone will finally realize all their dreams that they kind of were nurturing during socialism. And then that also fails. And so you can see in, in both cases, the difficulties of making this transition and the difficulties of kind of moving from, yeah, one traumatic phase, as it were, to another traumatic phase. What I absolutely loved while while reading the book was giving was getting this you know subjective viewpoint of actually watching in quote unquote real time political concepts, notions of freedom start to lose their grip as material reality was shifted and what that does to one's experience in the world, how jarring that is, how how like you, know, you, you, you lose your sense of like, so what makes sense and what doesn't? And so what I wanted to ask you about and what I really, really loved about the book is the non-judgmental account you're like, you're, you're giving of your parents, for instance, your mom, who really holds to a notion of liberal freedom. I think sometimes I do, something I do get frustrated with 
on the left is it's as if these people aren't human beings making sense of their reality. They're just dupes or they're fools. And what I got from, you know, the way that you were describing it, and I think you have a line like this near the end of the book, is that the image of freedom that they had was born of different set of conditions and context and what, what you came of age as. And what I took from that is it's actually you can make sense of why your your mom would have this notion of freedom as freedom of inner subjective experience of being able to say what you want and how that ends up in a sort of like you know, contradiction once the material reality changes you start saying oh okay but this actually you know takes away a different type of freedom and so I wanted to ask you like you know, did you mean to provide this sort of you know empathetic non-judgmental account even though you you end I, I believe like wanting to defend a socialist conception of freedom but I never got the sense that you're saying like this is this is foolish what came before yeah yeah, so I uh, I didn't mean to provide it, but I ended up providing it because of the way in which the book was written and because of the reasons for which I wrote the book. So one of the reasons I wrote the book in this form is, as I say at the end of it, is because I come from this dissident family who had this past of suffering under socialism where a lot of people went to prison, lots of people died, and, and lots of people paid for what other people had done, even though they didn't necessarily share their ideas. And so I have always been coming from Albania and calling myself a socialist unlike a lot of Western socialists, always on the defensive, because, you know, the burden on proof was of me to say, why, how can you still be a socialist given this history? And so in a way, the, the book was written, half of it almost in a kind of apologetic mode, because I had to explain to these people that, you know, were my, the generation above mine, and who lived still in Albania, and who still remembered this kind of past socialist experience, how come that I'm still attracted to these ideas? How come that I'm still committed to you know the injustice of capitalism or to you know how come I'm st I still believe that regardless of what Albania went through during socialism I can still see all the problems of liberalism and I can still want to have something beyond that so why is it that you're not happy with what you got given that you know you already had socialism in a way and it didn't work either so why are you not happy with the last one when you just try to improve so I've always had this kind of very strong anti-system instinct but I felt guilty because I had I lived in an environment in which this was, as I say in the book, this was like, you know, being complicit in murder and like being the person <laughs> pulls the trigger. And so the, the reason I then ended up writing the book in this way was that I felt I had to justify my beliefs as much as all the other people that I was describing had to in their in my book, in some ways through me, justify their beliefs. Mm. And so where that led me was to. First of all, thinking, okay, if I'm going to write a book about freedom and about the dangers of paternalism and ideology, I have to write it in the least paternalistic way possible. Mm. And, and to do that and to write a book in a non-paternalistic way, the first thing you need to avoid is the author to kind of impose their interpretation of reality and their system of values and you know, their theory of the world on the reader from the get-go. So I wanted to kind of take the reader on a journey and to say, look, there's all these different characters. They're all committed to certain ideas of freedom. They all want to live in the just society at the end of the day. They all want freedom. And the question is, how does structures, how do social structures enable or constrain the realization of these ideals? And what do they do in different systems? So, you know, in a socialist society, structures do certain things, but don't do other things. And in liberal society, structures kind of enable and constrain you in different ways. And so then I ended up basically having the main character be just an observer and not someone who would kind of tell the story on behalf of other people. So the effort was always throughout the book to try and every time I sort of 
you know, because I'm a theorist and I write political philosophy as a day job, I was, it was actually very hard to stop myself from saying, okay, now I'm going to give you an interpretation of how you read, you know, the collapse of communism or how you read the, uh, the emergence of liberalism or how you read the collapse of, of socialism. And I had to kind of hold back and stick with my initial intention, which was to just let the characters explain themselves. And hopefully by letting them explain themselves, the reader would themselves then kind of carry on this thought process and this reflection. And so the book would not be closed, but would be open and would in a way invite people on a journey and let them explore with the characters these different notions of freedom and then themselves continue to question what their beliefs were and what their commitments are. And so in the end, only in the epilogue, you see me now sort of explain and, and, and justify myself and to some extent also offer a kind of defense, I guess, of what I stand for. But I never wanted what I stand for to uh, be imposed on other people or to be used as a way of judging what other people were committed to, because I felt that each of them had their reasons for being where they were and that it was fair to listen to them and to have this almost like a deliberation ongoing in the book rather and, and, and a kind of ongoing conversation rather than someone who would tell people what they should think and what they should conclude from this. I'm curious when when people put the burden of of when people put the burden of proof on you, uh, you know, to justify Albanian socialism. If you ever kind of ask them, you know, as a retort, like, well, what about Albania's liberalization, right? Like, because it's not like that has been, you know, a lovely and smooth experience that has heralded freedom and equality for all. In fact, Albania has seen you know massive increases in inequality, senior citizen poverty. It's you know, so I wonder because it always strikes me as absurd that, and I was thinking this. Um, well, putting it this way, based on what you just said, that liberalism always gets to be this kind of triumphalist background of our conversations. Like we, we're allowed to have theoretical conversations about it because there is this kind of background assumption that like, well, obviously, practically, you know, it, it works so much better. But that's why I guess I'm wondering, do, like, what do people or do you ever say to people or ask them or how does that conversation come up? Or maybe just how do you approach it? The issues with Albania's in many ways, brutal experience of liberalization. Yeah, so I, I agree with what you say, and I I never do that. But the reason the reason I never say, well, what about you know, liberalism has also failed, is because I think the standards of socialists should be a lot higher than the standards of liberals. <laughs> so the <laughs> fact that the fact that liberalism <laughs> yeah. fails, I find the fact that liberalism fails is no justification, no excuse doesn't yeah. you know give you a reason to say you know it's not so for me it's never a question of like you know there's apples here and oranges there as you know rosa luxembourg has this uh, sentence which i love when she talks about revolution and she says you know people approach the question of reform and revolution as though you were approaching the question of do you want hot sausages and cold sausages and i find there's sort of something similar about and she criticizes that she says you know that's not what a revolution or reform are about it's not about which of these sausages do you want and for me it's sort of similar thing with with socialism and liberalism i never do that because i never think of those terms of those systems in those kind of consequentialist terms and in terms of like where are you know which one has more debt which one has more collapse mm -hmm. which one has created more injustice because i think i'm a socialist and so i believe that socialism is a system that realizes freedom better but for that reason i also think the burden of justification is a lot higher because if you have those standards and if you have those commitments then there are no excuses you know what other systems do the way they fail yeah. doesn't tell us anything about you know what you are committed to Having said that, I think I do, I, I only raise that and I only sort of in, in conversation with people, I raise it when people say to me, well, where has socialism realized, when they present you with this kind of feasibility test, right? So they often will, they will tell you, well, how come you're a socialist? If socialism is not feasible, it can't be realized. 
And I often say, well, liberalism is not feasible either. How do you realize it? When have you, where have you realized it? And so, yeah, I think it's certainly the case that if you come from the vast majority of the world, world's population, the vast majority of states have actually been failed by some form of liberalism or other. And to the extent that liberal institutions have succeeded, it has only been for a very small fraction of people in a very small mm. fraction of countries. But the problem is that that fraction of people and that fraction of countries control discourse and control ideology production. And so, you know, even if it's a minority, these positive experiences of liberalism and capitalism, even though it's an, it's an experience of a minority, it happens to be discursively dominant. And that's also why I wanted in the book when I talk about, I mean, I don't talk directly about ideology, but I do talk about how language shifts and how there are these, with the transition from one system to the other, the categories that people use in describing each of these systems and what they're committed to and what they want, what people want to realize in either of them are ideological categories that, you know, there's simply a replacement. There is nothing more than that. People talk about class struggle and then they start talking about civil society. They talk mm -hmm. about the party and they stop talking about the party and they start talking about NGOs and, you know, mobilizing and creating communities of human rights and, you know, all this kind of discourse. And to me, they all sound like slogans. If you come from this experience of, you know, ideological conformity and effort to kind of educate people with the categories, it really was a kind of overnight change in terms of discourses and in terms of categories that people used to describe the world that, um, that they knew. And so with liberalism, it's a similar thing. You have this developmental narrative, you have the narrative around human rights, you had the narrative around the time of the transition about, you know, the shock therapy. So we need to privatize quickly. We need to make sure that we open up to trade. We need to make sure that people are allowed to develop private property because then this is what will lead to freedom. And this is, you know, freedom works, as James Baker said on his first visit to Albania. And that's just, that's how discourses get reproduced. Some Someone comes, one leader goes, one system goes, their books that are associated to that system are taken out of circulation. There's new books that come in, like you get rid of Marx and Engels and you replace them with Hayek and Popper. And this makes discourses. <laughs> I feel like that's cold comfort for people who don't want to accept the arbitrariness of like these kinds of discursive shifts. I do think it's striking. Like, how is it possible that the shifts in these social practices will create these kind of, that make these like just totally alternative, but seemingly consistent based on what people are doing start to make sense. And I think that, I mean, if you have like a materialist idea of like where ideas come from, this is easy to imagine, but like, I think the liberal discourse relies on not doing that kind of analysis, you know, so it's kind of a simple point, but you can't think about the historical contingency of liberalism being like a viable ideology and something that people um, would prefer instead of something else. And it also, what you're saying just me, I laughed in the middle of it because you said civil society. And when I was reading the book, I was like, yes, and a whole cottage industry of critical theory for 20 years was like, yes, civil society, civil society, which is kind of interesting to reflect on how the words you were talking about in the structural transformation and the shock therapy and the transition, those were so obvious in like popular discourse, but they also just like permeated in critical theory and philosophy. Like no one escaped that, that language, period. And now it's kind of gone because we're in a crisis and people stop talking that way again. So, 
And just like building on that real quick, what I thought was really insightful in your book, it was especially the chapter Structural Reforms. Because this was you know, a moment while reading that where I realized because I am in, I'm in the heart of empire and all of that, you know, I, I deal with a different set of issues. But I think Canada. Like uh, well, yeah. Now I'm in the heart of second-rate empire. Um, <laughs> that you know, most Western liberals, especially I feel like the ones I would encounter in the academy, have not had the experience of what structural adjustment looks like, what that feels like. And when you were saying just a little bit ago that, in essence, an experience of liberalism overrepresents itself globally, as what are you talking about? This is great. We've got you know Coca-Cola and voting rights. Yet most people in the United States states do not know what it looks like to have these you know, non-governmental organizations say you have to balance your budgets now. And so that story you told of your father, like trying to like you know, hold on to these people's jobs while there's just this anonymous force in the name of freedom saying you're going to have to fire these people. I thought that was like really insightful because it seems to me that a lot of liberals claim to be thinking internationally, but they just use their own individual experience and don't even think, well, are these structural reforms also entailed by liberalism? Because this seems like actually a deep denial of freedom. How would you, you know, how would you justify this? So I thought you know, that was like really great. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more of like you know, the experience of these new structures of freedom and the audience can see by put scare quotes around freedom that come in and that that experience of that, you know, that reality changing over just like a couple months. Yeah, I mean, I think that part is his, was historically also very interesting, in part because I think the West or the Western liberals assumed that when people rebelled against socialism or sort of state socialism, what they wanted was a free market economy. And I think, in fact, if you look at the dissident movements in Eastern Europe and, you know, everywhere, basically, where they were rebelling, and even now, if you look at existing, for example, even in Cuba, there have been protests and so on. If you look at sort of what one might call social movements in socialist states, they often criticize and object to hierarchical power relations or to the lack of democracy, the lack of accountability, the lack of free speech and so on. But none of these things, that critique of democracy and that critique of the kind of absence of internal democracy and the rigidification of the bureaucratic system in these states, none of it entails free market economy or capitalism, basically. And it did not entail this historically either. So if you look at the experiences of dissident movements in 1989, 1990 in Eastern Europe, there was, of course, big dissatisfaction with the system in which they lived. But the fact that they weren't happy with what they had didn't mean that they were more happy to have, you know, what the Americans had or what the, you know, Western liberals thought they wanted. And so for us in Albania, and I think this generalizes actually across Eastern Europe, there was a sense in which the internal discourse of dissidents against state socialism was co-opted by those who thought they had won the Cold War and instrumentalized to propagate a kind of free market ideology and a sort of pro-capitalist, basically, set of institutions which came with its own discourses of structural reform and shock therapy and its own, you know, theoretical justification, which I don't think was there at the time. People didn't, when people rebelled against state socialism, they didn't know that what they wanted was actually capitalism. What they wanted was democracy. And democracy is a kind of empty floating signifier that you have to think about how you can fill it in and how you can use it as an emancipatory category. 
basically. But it can be an emancipatory category without being immediately filled with capitalism and free market society and so on. And my father was a very good example of that because he, as I explained in the book, came from a dissident family. He was called this Albanian prime minister who was often considered to, well, who had been a fascist and had been pivotal in ceding the, the the crown of Albania to the fascists when they came. And so he was a de facto collaborator with the colonizing power. And so my, my, my father had the same name as this prime minister for reasons that I explained in the book. And he, however, was not at all himself on the right. In fact, he's always been, you know, he read these movements and when he observed 1968, both in the West and in the East, he was sort of, this is great. And so he was a democratizing, pro-democracy campaigner, I guess, would have been in, in the West and a kind of typical 1968, or even though he grew up in this very isolated country, who believed that freedom is not just freedom of speech, but it's also to have opportunities and to have sort of opportunities for, for social participation and so on. So for him to be on the end of someone who actually has to implement these market reforms, as he was post-1990, he became the, the CEO of the port and he was he had to go through these meetings with the World Bank and with the IMF and basically was just told what to do. You know, there were experts. And I remember, this is not in the book, but, but I remember this episode from, from back at the time where my dad was saying, he, he went to, he used to go every day to these meetings. And in these meetings, people were saying, look, you have to modernize. And to modernize means to cut labor. And you need to basically cut costs. You've got too many people employed. You just need to fire them. And my father at some point came home and said, look, one of these experts from the World Bank is paid the same amount as all of the people who work in the port as freight workers, as transport workers. <laughs> so he was saying, I, I told, <laughs> he said, I told them, why don't you sack yourself? <laughs> if you stop paying yourself that amount of money, then I can keep all these people in business. But the reason they didn't do that is because of this ideological argument they were making. You know, we are the experts. We get paid this because our knowledge is valuable this much. And what you need to do as the port of Duras is to basically just fire people, sack them. And for my dad, this was, you know, he, he came home and said, I, I can't tell the Roma people who work in the port, the freight workers and the transport workers and the dock, you know, employees and so on. I can't tell them, you go home, because they look at these experts who have come here to implement the reforms and they just say, well, they get paid the same amount as all of us in one month. Wow, that moment in which your dad, there was, an, there was a part that was in the book where he started predicting, he was like, soon the experts are going to come in. Yeah. And he was, that was when he started getting nervous about learning English and started pursuing the language courses and everything because he was like, the experts will come. And you told it in this way, you know, from the perspective of an early teenager. So it wasn't clear who like the, at the point that who the experts were, but your dad was already, he was kind of foretelling this story that the experts were going to come into Albania and we're, these are going to be the people now that we have to have to deal with. So that was an interesting part of it for, for me. Well, I mean, what what's also interesting is, of course, his generation had grown up completely isolated from the West. And so they had grown up with this kind of idolizing mm -hmm. of, you know, the foreigners and the Westers who knew what they were doing. And we, on the other hand, had gotten everything wrong. And so, so there was a sense of historically sort of inbuilt sense of inferiority, I guess, which was consolidated again by you know by outside discourses as well and so at the point in which the system collapses the this generation is left thinking well now you know the west is going to be here and they will help us and they know better than us and then suddenly they're confronted with the reality of the west and they're in their heart of hearts they know that this is not the case right yeah i also so um i like this point that you've made just a few moments ago about how you know dissident movements in existing socialist countries aren't 
ought not be read as demands for the imposition of like you know western capitalism necessarily one of the things that that comes through very powerfully in the first part of the book is this sort of vague but insistent sense of a lack of freedom at the level of like discourse and of ideology there is some like very like terrifying stories that you tell about instances of speech being very dangerous or like having the sense that there are things that can't be said or ought not to be expressed. And in some of these cases, you're very young, right? You're not even 10 years old when like you say something that like it turns out is very dangerous um, and you learn, you know, what are the rules about what can and can't be spoken of, which is the sort of thing that calls for, you know, criticism and transformation, of course. And then the moment, you know, 1990 comes and the, the Socialist Party cedes its monopoly on power and opens up for the possibility of an opposition party. And both of your parents are immediately like, yep, we're, we're going there. We're, we're, we no longer are, are loyal to this thing to which we've been basically forced to, see, to pledge loyalty. But then again, like that's not to say that like the demand for something like greater freedom of expression or the possibility of having alternative positions is a demand for like full blown capitalist exploitation or expropriation. So there's an interesting sort of like line that I think you managed to express in walking very carefully here that I appreciated very much. And yeah, like I said, some of the stories were very I was physically tense reading some of these stories. Yeah, I think one of the one of the other themes that I was sort of wanted to really hint at, at least with the, with the narrative, is this idea of both the limits and the possibilities of discourse, even in the presence of ideology and sense constraining ideology and censorship. Because again, I think often when you know Western liberals engage with non-Western or what non-liberal realities, let's say, the assumption is always that you know this is a, either a purely oppressive society or a free society, and there is very little nuance in between. And what I wanted to discuss when I was talking about, for example, socialism in Albania, which again is a limit case in terms of how severe the censorship was and how restricted the possibilities for free expression were, was that even in that very oppressive case, there are still nuances of discourse. There are still communities in which you can have the possibility of articulating free opinion. It's going to be in code language and it's going to be only with people you trust and it's going to be only within certain communities. And so for someone who is a child like me, these are the rules that need to be learned how to navigate. And these are the kind of norms that you internalize as you grow up. And that's what actually it means to grow up is to internalize these norms. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to give that example as actually paradigmatic of how things might be happening in contexts and in societies in which we only have superficial knowledge of. And we're making assumption about those societies without actually understanding the nuances and the margins for both criticism and dissent and possibilities for free expression in these societies. But when it comes to then interpreting these realities, you know, when there's a crunch moment or when there's a crisis, we all make assumption on behalf of what these what movements want in these societies, what freedom means for them, what, you know, the dissidents require, what the West needs to help with. And sometimes it's a kind of, there's a deep ignorance around actually what's going on. And I mean, obviously, I don't know what happens in other cases, but I felt very strongly coming from Albania that there are margins and there are ways of interpreting social reality that are available inside that are not really accessible to outsiders epistemically. And yet that epistemic ignorance plays a massive role when it comes to thinking about how you ought to engage with these realities at some point, you know, when 
now there's obviously we discuss humanitarian intervention or we discuss emancipation, we discuss women's rights or we discuss, you know, what people want on the ground in whatever other non-Western context. And, and very important decisions are made on behalf of these people, but often with very little knowledge of how they actually navigate these tensions inside their societies. And I wanted to give this as an example of, you know, to just I knew I was writing in a way also for a kind of Western, I guess, liberal market. And I wanted to use it as an example to say, look, even when you think there is like very severe censorship and very dark reality, people are actually finding ways of coping and they're finding ways to navigate. And from there, it's, this is where criticism is generated. And this is how political opportunities arise that you may not be aware of from the outside. Yeah, I want to ask something else just about parsing liberalism, because it's clear on the one hand that like from your work and from this book that you can't like separate the realities of liberalism or liberalization from including economic realities, like from the concept of it. And yet I've also kind of heard you say elsewhere that in some ways the left actually takes for granted certain aspects of liberalism and it expects that they'll never have to be defended. And we generally like them, but um, you know, you know, we don't really explicitly thematize them or we don't really explicitly come to their defense. Right. And yet there is a sense in which we kind of just expect they'll always be there. So I, I guess I, I'm interested in like, in how it is that you see this, that kind of tension between not separating liberalism from in many ways, the brutal, especially economic realities, right. That are attached to it. And yet seeing that there, and you can even see this at the beginning of the book, that there are aspects of free expression that are obviously desirable or aspects of liberal values that are obviously desirable and that probably none of us on the left would, would want to dispense with as much as, you know, we're loath to talk about it. Like, I can't remember the last nice thing I said about liberalism, but when you said that, I, it, it felt very true to me, you know? I mean, yeah, that partly goes back to what we started with at the beginning. I think there is a sense in which there are moral categories that are available to us on which both liberals and socialist discourses are premised. And in part, you know, one of the ideas of freedom that I wanted to explore in the book is actually this moral idea of freedom, which is, you know, you can engage with the world from a moral perspective by thinking, you know, what is the right thing that needs to be done despite the constraints, despite the fact that I am aware that there are oppressive circumstances, that every individual is limited. And yet I don't want to completely give up on the possibility of free agency and moral agency, even in these kind of oppressive circumstances. And I find, uh, so in that sense, I find that, yes, in the institutional realities that we're familiar with, there are always also moral categories that play a role. And in fact, these moral categories are the ones that social movements who play an emancipatory function in society invoke when they try to criticize the institutions under which they live. And it's important not to lose them. And it's important to also be aware of how, you know, both they can be distorted, but also because they're distorted, it doesn't mean that they're not there, that they're not powerful. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we have to be cynical and relativist and completely give up and, and, and trash everything, you know, just because it's really hard to realize freedom, just because it's, real, it's really hard to see how morality operates in this kind of messy world that we live in. That's, it's, it's important to be aware of the constraints, but I think it's also important to have a sense of limitation of where, you know, that awareness of the constraint doesn't leave you, doesn't lead you to cynicism and to political apathy and to complete amoralism and to say, oh, well, then there, it's always the powerful that win. And therefore, you know, it's always whoever is stronger. And, and because I think that takes you to a kind of, I think it takes you to a very dangerous place philosophically and even more dangerous place politically. So philosophically, I think it leads you to a kind of nihilism about the future and pessimism about what human beings can actually do. And politically, I think it leads you to, to theories and to ideologies that then 
end up glorifying, you know, power, the will to power or violence or whatever, because you have in some ways given up on these ideals of freedom and morality and so on. So I think it's really important to hold on to that whilst also being critical and, and nuanced. So I was thinking, this is actually something that came out to me while reading reading the memoir, is is what you're saying, that you're, you're trying to say, you show that there are these moral categories, and even when they're distorted or imperfectly realized, that doesn't mean they're not there and people aren't trying to, to act on them in the meantime. And I think in liberal societies, you have, like, we're more familiar with what that might mean. Like we talk about civil liberties and various kinds of freedom of expression. And even where when things are not fair or things are unduly constrained, many people do have a sense of, of defending them none, nonetheless. Um, what were those under socialism in Albania? Like what is some um, way, like moral way of thinking, moral category, aspiration that was distorted and imperfectly realized that people might not be so familiar with or be able to to think about concretely because it's like a different different way of living? Oh, I mean, I think social justice was really important and this commitment to equality was really important in both in the socialist discourse, but also in the in the lives of people. So this idea that Equality of opportunity really means equality of opportunity. It's not just a kind of, you know, a buzzword. It's not just an empty slogan. It means really that you pay for holidays for workers. And it means that, for example, as my teacher used to say, you know, in capitalism, she used to say, if you want to practice the piano and if you want to be, you know, an athlete, you have to pay for private lessons or you have to pay for private tuition to, to go swimming or to practice swimming and so on. And in a socialist society, the state guarantees all these things because the state guarantees equal access to education as a matter of fact. And, you know, it, it just happens. It's just done. But but then, of course, you know, there was class struggle and there were these all the problems that I discussed as well with coming from a descendant family and the sense in which your biography was important and that would constrain you along the line. So that was a clear commitment to a principle, which is, you know, the principle of equal opportunity, let's say, and equal flourishing for everyone and this idea that children have to have a range of things accessible and, and available to them, but which then in practice meant that if you were a child that came from a family like mine, down the line, you would end up being marginalized and put to one side, even though the discourse, the kind of the commitment to the discourse was there. So I think it's, but it's important to know that, you know, this, that society was committed to these things. It was committed to great quality education, that it was trying to, to realize these values and that, that this idea of kind of equal flourishing of all individuals was really important and was not just important as a discourse, but was actually part of the constitutional structure, was juridically enforced, which is why, you know, there were no, for example, private lessons and you couldn't, everything was guaranteed by the state, basically. You were talking a moment ago about like uh, the need to avoid falling into a sort of nihilism, both philosophically and politically. And one of the things that you say in the epilogue of the, the piece is, and again, discussions with Western Western leftists when you get to university, is that there is like this distinction between like the two different experiences or concepts maybe of socialism, where like there was this like backward looking failed socialism of the past, right, which is this like history of, of failures and violence and repression. And then this bright you know, utopian successful socialism to come. And there's a sense that both of these conceptions are are faulty or one-sided, that there needs to be an incorporation of the lessons of the failures of the past as we look toward a future in struggle. And so I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what you take to be some of the like, you know, 
positive takeaways for theory and practice from the the experiment of, of the Albanian socialist project and in it, both in its successes and failures. I mean, you're just talking a bit about like what the state guaranteed, but you know, how do we avoid falling into this naive sort of like it's a full failure or full utopian success way of thinking about this? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, one of the most important things about the socialist history is something that you know Rosa Luxemburg already pointed out when she was sort of confronting these experiments for the first time which was the fact that this is for the first time an effort to institutionalize an anti-capitalist system and it's the first time in which you try and create a legal order that doesn't put commodification and commercial interest at its heart but actually puts this idea of socialist flourishing which i think is a very different idea mm. to liberal flourishing and to, and to capitalist flourishing because it consider it re, it engages the human being in a very different way so in a capitalist system a human being is always as a result of these unintended consequences unintended cooperation in the market and so can be marginalized can be instrumentalized can be manipulated can be dominated and I think for the first time in, in this effort to kind of construct a socialist society, what you get is an attempt to get away from that and to get away from, you know, the juridical structure of a liberal capitalist society and the, the creation of a different juridical structure, different constitutional, different set of, of legal relations. So, so I think that for me is really important because in a way it shows you the feasibility of kind of constructing a system beyond capitalism. And some of the things that people talk about when they talk about the Soviet Union and what was achieved and, you know, the advances in science, for example, or the advances in knowledge or the fact that, you know, people were very educated, very well read. And I often talk in a book about competition, which took the form of not competing with money, but competing with, you know, learning and, and reading more books and, and having this kind of desire to discover the world more. I think that's all really important. For me, the reason to not see the past of socialism as completely detached and divorced from the future of socialism is that I think we, I think socialism, I think the left more generally, needs to think not just about the economic structures that we set in motion, but also about the kind of theory of the state and the political relations that the socialist society will embody. And for me, the greatest failure, the biggest failure, the disastrous failure of all these societies was actually to not think about democracy at a sufficiently sophisticated level. What does it mean to construct a socialist society which is democratic through and through? From the basic units of production to, you know, high up in the state, what does it mean to uh, have a state in which, you know, the elites can circulate all the time, where you don't have this nomenclatura that rigidifies and creates a bureaucracy that then blocks progress from being made and blocks criticism and so on. There is a kind of critique of the state, which you can find in some of the sort of socialist writings, from which you can also, I think, construct a democratic theory that is appropriate for socialist institutions. But that's never really been developed because I think socialists have focused much more on economic critiques of liberalism and capitalism and much less on kind of political critiques. And in part because of their own history, you know, every time you mention democracy, you couldn't really criticize capitalist societies for the lack of democracy because then you looked at yourself and you thought, well, this is not going very well either. So, you know, there is a sense in which voting and sort of these first generation liberties are not that meaningful here either. And I think, you know, if there's one lesson to learn and why it's for me so important to think about these continuities between the past and, and the future is that I find that same lack of democracy will characterize any effort that you make in the future to kind of create an anti-capitalist society if you think that you can do better than these other guys who did it in the past. Because I don't think they failed for contingent mm. reasons. I think they failed because the theories that they had available and the kind of ideologies that they were working with were basically not sufficiently equipped to provide democratic critique 
and a sort of new democratic foundation for a new system. And so because that hasn't been the case and that still hasn't been done because we still think we can do better, I think there's a very high risk that this fails again and it, and it gets all, yeah, if, if, if it ever gets done again, it goes all very badly wrong again. I always find myself so suspicious of people on the left who it's like the version of the argument is like, do this critique, something happens in the middle, we win. And I'm like, so like, wait, wait, what, what, what goes on in the middle? Because like you, because what I, I found really compelling, what you're saying there's, you know, we shouldn't assume that there's some sort of, you know, automatic mechanism that for some reason, those people in the past, they just didn't realize, you know, how to do justice and democracy. But when we do it, it's just going to follow because we're tapping into some human nature. And so what I hear you saying is that, you know, we not only engage with the failures of the past in order to look at what they did wrong, but to understand that we need renewed attention to concepts and reality that would actually fill in the issue of, you know, we don't want just democracy at the economic level, but we do want to create a society in which people can cooperate with one another, live with one another, and see themselves in the society as free, rather than thinking, but no, when we impose it, it's going to be good this time. And sometimes I'm talking to people, it seems like they really do think that they're the ones who know, that if they had been there back in 1950, they would have gotten it right. And I, I really appreciate this attention to, well, freedom is a really complex moral category of deep significance to the human agents, not just you know, personifications of the bearer of relations. And how are you going to reconcile that with living, breathing human beings who have these desires? I was just going to ask, like, why, what you all think, like, why do people think they can do better? I mean, because I just think it's obviously true what Leah is saying, that, like, the lack of interest in kind of making, you know, the, the taboo against making blueprints about, like, you know, designing alternative systems, like, that kind of, like, imaginatory just searching whether, I mean, I'm someone, I am very interested in the economy and I think like I've recently taken an interest in the socialist calculation debate and just like people who are trying to think of alternative systems. I do feel like what you're saying is right, that people tend to just take it for granted, not only that that's not necessary, but somehow that that's undesirable and what tends to follow from it being undesirable, maybe because it's undemocratic to impose blueprints on people or something like that. But then the leap of faith must be at the end of that train of thought that like you are going to be able to do it better, even if you don't say what you're going to do ahead of time. Like if I'm in this situation um, and I don't have a blueprint, our version of revolutionary democracy is like going to it's just going to go, man. And like, I, I, we're going to do I, the I, not repression. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, so I have a, I have a guess and it's not, it's not a very popular guess. I have a kind of wild, wild hunt for why that is the case. And I think it's because people believe too much in the liberalism in which they live actually. So I think it's because we think that the societies that we have now on whose premises, you know, this new world will be constructed are kind of okay. They're not, <laughs> they're not exactly okay, but they're almost there. And we just need to kind of take the last, you know, leap and then it will, and then it will happen. And so this is why I think I've, in, in, in some ways I say it's very, when I think this and when I say it, I feel it's a very unpopular thing to say because I don't have this, 
you know, I don't come from that place when it comes to liberalism. I think, you know, the liberalism that we have now, even if it's better than the liberalism of a century ago, it's only better for contingent reasons, but not because, you know, people have actually inherently become better or, you know, because their interests have improved or because their self-awareness has become better. But I think when this assumption is made about, you know, this time is going to work, is because we think we're working from a higher place of a higher kind of moral consciousness, as it were, compared to where, you know, liberals were 100 years ago, let's say, or 200 years ago. And so in some ways, we have this kind of developmental narrative mm-hmm. whereby our liberal institutions are have improved as well. And because we will start with this kind of improved liberal institutions, then the new institutions that will improve them even further will not have all the deficiencies of the previous ones. And I think if you were, if you didn't have this kind of, even as a leftist, a kind of this kind of starry-eyed belief in liberalism, belief in liberalism, you wouldn't actually think, you, you think, no, actually, you know, when, when things go bad, when people's interests are threatened, and when, you know, if you, if you really think that there is class conflict and there is class struggle, and when you go and kind of attack the interests of the rich and you harm the elites, when they get angry about that, they get, things can go really, really badly. And, they, and historically, they have always been, really, they have gone really badly, regardless of how well, you know, if you think about the Weimar period, Liberal institutions in the Weimar period were great, actually. They look great. You know, if you think about juridical thought and political thought and sociological thought, all of these were very developed. And the consciousness of society, it looked from the outside, was perfect. And then what do you get? You get fascism and you get Nazism within 20 years. And why is that? Because that's the point in which the interests of the elites get really threatened. And when they get really threatened, then there is pure violence and fascists are there to just help the capitalist elites. And so I think. Our more optimistic assessment about the future maybe comes from the fact that we think, well, now what we have, surely people have learned, you know, never again fascism and never again Nazism, never again these people won't be, it's just not going to happen. It's not, they're not going to be as nasty as that. And I think, well, actually, it can happen and they might be. And so, and this is why it's really important to learn from history and to kind of engage with it and, and not to think about the future in this, I guess, idealistic way. And also not to think about liberalism in this idealistic way, but just to, to think about it historically and in a more nuanced way, I guess. Well, on that excellent point, I think that does it for us today. Leah's book, Free, is coming out in October in the UK and January in North America. Thanks again for joining us, Leah. Thank you for having me. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you and are really grateful for your support. So today we'd like to thank Leah Namaten Brink, Richard Fairbanks, Luca Perella, Beep, Ariel de la Garza, Tatiana Safarian, Eli Itzowski, Harpreet Chima, Rich Jensen, Lindsay Turner, Theo Jacobs, Jonas Teal, Ofer Ilias, Target, Louis Falkingham, Jeremiah Traeger, Valentin van der Horst, Robin Manley, Declan Barnes, and Rena. If you'd like to support the show, uh, like those lovely people, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash leftofphilosophy. Follow us on Twitter at leftofphil. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Lula. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.